Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest's score mixing credits include Netflix NGDH's Thai horror film Ghost Lab, focus feature drama Blue Bayou, Netflix's Cobra Kai, and HBO Max's documentary feature Tina. He has become a recognized face in the music scoring industry for specializing in recording and mixing music for films, TV shows, and video games. His work on Netflix's Golden Globe and Emmy Award-nominated uh, series, Ozark, earned him an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Sound Mixing for a Comedy or Drama Series in 2020. I'm so excited to welcome on my friend, and the mixer is Phil McGowan. Good to be here. Yeah, good to see you. You too. Um, so Phil, I mean, we've known each other for a couple of years now, but but yeah, I was just kind of curious about like when you first, you know, had an interest in music and uh, if there were any engineers, mixers, that kind of thing that inspired you uh, from a young age. Yeah, I mean, I discovered score mixing in high school. Um, I had been playing music for a while. I mean, everyone in my family played music. My mom actually has her music education degree and my dad played keyboards um, and organ just sort of uh, not professionally but they both grew up playing music. And then my sister started taking piano lessons when we were kids, and then I wanted to. Um, so I've been playing music since I was a little kid. Um, but I started getting interested in film music uh, somewhere around junior high, high school. Uh, I think it was really actually video game music that first got me into it. I was a huge fan of mm-hmm. Mist and Riven. Uh, cool. And I got those soundtracks like at Barnes & Nobles or something back in the day. I just saw them on the shelf. I was like, oh, I like those games. I mean, what's that music? And it kind of like was like, really interested in that kind of vibe and music that's not um that just kind of sets the tone and mood and things like that and then i started noticing music and films and things like that and really got an interest in film music and film sound i was really like a dvd junkie when i was in high school i'd always get the like bonus feature ultimate edition whatever version of any film i wanted to see so i could get all the bonus features and get a little window into the industry because back then this was you know mid-2000s YouTube had just started. There wasn't a pure mix. There's no mix with the masters. There's not nothing like that to really immerse yourself into the world before you kind of dive into it. Um, so then I decided that I wanted to study engineering and possibly composition and stuff like that formally. So I discovered Berkeley College of Music and went there from 2006 to 2009. Originally, I was going to do a dual major with MP and film scoring, but then I decided I didn't really want to write professionally. That really my forte was mixing and engineering. It's one of the great things about going to a school like that where there's just tons of talent everywhere. It kind of like puts you in your place naturally because there's other people that just kind of have a knack for certain things that you maybe thought you were good at. <laughs> and I kind of well, realized. Did you, enjoy, sorry. did you enjoy writing music too though? Or was it something where you were like, you know, with all this talent out here, I think I enjoy this other thing that I happen to be 
maybe better at or just good at. Yeah, I definitely have more confidence as an engineer producer. Like I, I, I had a good confidence that I could go far with it and really excel. Where writing right. music, I mean, I'm a musical person. I think I write some interesting things and could play some interesting stuff, but I didn't really feel like I was. Uh, I had as much potential. I mean, I probably could have worked on it like anything. You have to put a lot of effort in to get to where you want to be. Um, but I realize this is probably where I'm best suited. Uh, and I still write just on the side for fun things, nothing professional, um, just to kind of have fun. Um, but yeah, so I went to Berkeley, uh, graduated in 2009. Then I moved out to LA in May, uh, sorry, March of 2010. Started assisting a couple other mixers um, and some composers. And then eventually in October 2010, uh, I, I got hired on staff with Trevor Morris as his tech. And then eventually uh, stayed with him for four and a half years, became his kind of in-house engineer, mixer, editor. Started doing more and more of his TV shows and then some of his films and things like that. Uh, then I went freelance six years ago now in March of 2000, or sorry, April of 2015. And I've uh, been doing that ever since. Right. And for composers and, you know, aspiring mixers uh, listening, do you think it was more common to have like an in-house mixer engineer if you were, you know, a composer back, I guess, seven years ago, 10 years ago? Or is that still happening these days? Not really. I mean, anybody that has a studio, obviously there's engineers on staff at remote. Um, you know, James Newton Howard has a mix room. So there's some staff members there that are more engineering type people. You know, John Powell has people on staff with him cause he kind of has a studio, but it's definitely, it's not, it's not all that common. Most composers don't have like a mixing studio. So they usually just hire people in separately. Um, and I was definitely a little bit more unusual where basically I was a composer's assistant. That's exactly what I was doing when I first got hired, but mm -hmm. I always had the intention of being an engineer, whereas every other assistant wants to be a composer. So it was, I guess a little bit unique that way that I was doing composer system work, but with the final goal of being a mixer engineer as opposed to actually being a composer myself. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure that, it, I mean, kind of being in that position too, it, it makes you understand how other composers are going on their, their way up too and yeah, kind of have a shared camaraderie kind of aspect. Yeah, except it's all like all the other assistants are my potential future clients instead of competitors. So <laughs> that's kind of the nice part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, since going freelance, uh, I mean, you're right now, I think, recording from your, your studio, your place, right? Yeah. This is the studio at home. Uh, my wife and I rent a house in Culver City that has a space out back where I've, I'm set up in. Um, when I first went freelance, I wasn't, a, a, I was kind of just crashing in an extra room that a, another composer friend of mine had, but then he needed the space. So I ended up just moving back home to um, the second bedroom in our second, uh, our two bedroom apartment. And that worked for a while. Uh, but then eventually I needed a more pro space. I, I started to have some more high profile clients come over for mixed reviews and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're just going to go in this little room in the back of my apartment. And I was like, ah, I need to like find something a little more pro. Um, but I liked working from home. I got used to being able to like start dinner early and come back to work or bounce back and forth. I kind of liked having the studio at home. So I realized instead of putting money towards renting a studio, which can be really expensive in LA, um, I was like, why don't we just take the money I would spend renting a studio, tack that onto our rent and find a house to rent that has a space for me. Um, so that's what we ended up doing. And this is the second rental house we've moved into that has a sort of backspace for me. So it's a, it's a nice, uh, lifestyle that I like. I'm, right. You have to be able to obviously set work aside. You know, when I leave the studio, lock the studio, be done for the day. Don't always be like bouncing back here. Some people, I guess, kind of have that problem. They like to have a studio that's like a drive away so they can really separate their work and home life. But for me, it works. I mean, it's got its ups and downs. Yeah. I was going to ask in, in terms of that and keeping like a healthy relationship with life, I guess, just like, uh, do you set your own hours of like, 
you know, I'm going to work like 10 to six or like if it's project coming up, you know, I'm going to try to just assign these hours. And then the next day, like, you know, assign like a little break here and there, or is it just kind of dependent on the project? Somewhat. I mean, I, I pretty much always book by a day rate just because I kind of guess how many days um, based on how many minutes of music there is and, you know, what the complexity is of all the cues and things like that. I just book a, a fixed set of days and I try to keep them light. I don't, you know, I think there's, in my opinion, sort of an over glorification of, you know, like spending our entire lives in the studio and working super late nights all the time and working every day of the week. And those (laughs) periods of your life happen, but it's not something I strive for. I like when I can finish by six or seven o'clock and go have dinner at a normal time and kind of have personal time um, on days that I'm working. So I, I, I try to keep my hours relatively normal, but obviously times happen where I'm working all night or working super late and trying to meet a deadline or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of a, it's, it's not really a fixed, you know, I don't have like a clock out time that I, that I'm like, oh, I have to be done by this time. It's usually, I have a, you know, number of cues that I want to get mixed in a day or something like that. And if I'm, if it's getting late and I'm not quite done, I might just be like, oh, I can finish this in the morning and then go on to the next chunk or maybe I'll work later. You know, it just kind of depends on the, on the project. Right. Well, um, you know, I, I feel like you're someone who seems really well organized and, you know, helps make it easier for other people to not have to work till 3am anyways to it. I mean, I even appreciate just going to your website, like seeing the contact form and just having like your list of deliverables for, for projects, for composers. And that helped me like redo my composer template. Now everything's bouncing faster and oh, cool. logic or key base. And yeah. <laughs> and, and on that too, I mean, so you have this YouTube channel that you started and the first video I think was the Cobra Kai score breakdown of how you mixed the queue. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been intending to do that for years and I've, I bought some equipment and uh, like a webcam and some you know, stuff to get Pro Tools routed into ScreenFlow and all that kind of stuff. But I just never got around to finally doing it. And then the push was actually Leo and Zach, the composers, were going to do this like big promo for the soundtrack that came out earlier this year. Um, and they literally were just like, hey, man, you want to do like, I don't know, like a video about one of the cues? I was like, I was literally thinking that that would be a, a great first um, project for me to feature for like a YouTube channel that I want to start. So that kind of gave me the little push to just finally do it, sit down, do a walkthrough, um, learn screen flow and just kind of get it done and produced um, in time to coincide with the soundtrack release. Um so, I mean, they, they take a little while to do. I mean, though, most of it's just me sitting here, like, going over my session and just rambling. <laughs> it's not, I, I don't really edit them very much because I don't know what I would edit out. Everything's kind of just me talking about the sessions. I'm sure they're horrible for the YouTube al- algorithm because they're like an hour and a half each. <laughs> but, uh, well, well, you said you've been thinking about it for a while, though, and then that was a good push. But, I mean, you know, I think a lot of composers appreciate this wealth of knowledge you're just posting. But, uh, what was the idea behind it? Like, or like, when you started thinking about, you know, well, originally I was thinking about actually up. producing a course, like a score mixing mm. course. Um, I have a whole like outline planned of like different lessons and things like that. And part of it was, I don't, especially four or five years ago, there wasn't much of that around. I mean, now at least like Alan Myerson's on mix of the masters. I know Jake Jackson has some stuff he's done. Um, but just, there's, there's plenty of stuff about mixing pop and rock and, other genres like that or EDM production, but there's really not a lot about score mixing because it's kind of a weird little niche. There's not a lot of score mixers out there doing this kind of work. So I figured it'd be beneficial. I was thinking, you know, myself when I was starting out would have died to see someone like to just sit there and watch someone open up their session and how they route everything and how they approach a big queue and things like that. That's stuff you could only learn if you're actually assisting somebody. So now it's nice that we actually have people that are 
putting out videos talking about how they actually do their work. Um, so I figured I'd just join in on that and kind of share my knowledge. And, you know, I, I have a certain way of organizing my sessions and routing and things like that that I think are pretty beneficial for both mixers and composers, just kind of the way I organize my buses and all my stems and things like that. Um, and yeah, literally it's video for nerds. You know, I didn't expect many people would actually want to watch it because it's pretty specific to just mixing film music. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I lay it all out there. I don't try to dumb things down or anything. It's kind of intended for people that have at least a decent knowledge of what mixing is and pro tools and engineering and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, also on top of that, I mean, even for people mixing pop or whatever, it's kind of fun with the cue you showed off that it is that quintessential like Cobra Kai sound where it's like half rock band, half orchestra and yeah, just figuring out how to keep, I mean, two things that on their own kind of fill a whole frequency spectrum and that, that can be a full production, but then how to navigate deciding what's the featured uh, element of a mix at certain times, you know, that's a pretty complicated thing. Yeah. That show is so fun because it literally crosses. I mean, I've mixed electronic music for that rock stuff, eighties hair metal, uh, 80s pop stuff and then obviously there's a lot of the orchestral score um, some of which is more modern but then there are a few cues that were trying to do a sort of Bill Conti-ish throwback to the Karate Kid stuff so it's kind of fun some of the cues um, they wanted me to try to sort of match the sound of that of that movie so maybe a little bit less of a happy face EQ on the orchestra a little more mid-rangey a little more 80s sounding um, so yeah that, that, that show has been a lot of fun and I kind of get to flex all my mixing muscles. <laughs> sure. How'd you meet Zach and Leo too? Uh, they actually, I met them when they were both still assisting Chris Beck. Uh, Chris and Casey Stone, uh, his engineer, would rent Trevor's mix studio when I was still working there. So I got to work on RIPD, uh, the first Ant-Man. Uh, what else did Chris mix there? Muppets Most Wanted. I think it was just those three movies. But I think throughout all those films, Zach and Leo were assistants. So I was like the guy having to get all the prelays and stems because I was building sessions for Casey to mix with. So I was in contact with them. And then they, you know, Trevor's studio in Santa Monica was right around the corner from Chris Beck's studio. So they would come over all the time and I just kind of became friends with them. And then I think the first thing I did with them was this, um, another YouTube show called Sing It, which was like a parody of... Um, American Idol or X Factor or something like that, which is really fun because, uh, well, actually, I think I didn't do any of the score stuff because that was all pretty simple and they just sent that directly to the dub. But they produced a lot of the songs that were sung on the show. So that for me was just mixing a bunch of cover songs to have sort of a pseudo live feel because it was all the vocals from the characters in the show. And then we recorded drums, bass, and guitar up at Energy Studios in uh, the Valley. And just it was like Britney Spears and, um, Christina Aguilera and all these like hits that we're kind of doing new versions of as if they were on American Idol or X Factor or something like that. And that was, I think, yeah, the first thing I did with them, which was 2016, 2015, pretty early on when I first went freelance. Nice. Yeah. It also seems like a lot of the uh, composers you work with tend to be repeat clients and that you really do establish a great working relationship with composers you work with. Yeah, those guys, you know, I still do work with Trevor when he's got bigger projects that need uh, a lot of mixing done. And then my main guys are definitely Danny Bensey and Sonar Jurians, who are the Ozark uh, composers. They are probably like 60, 65, 70% of my work now. They've gotten really busy. So I feel like every mixer kind of has their main couple of clients that give, that give them most of their work. And then we fill it in with whoever else comes along our way and wants to hire us. Yeah. 
I mean, I assume that's a thing that you know grows with time. But do you have any advice for anyone looking to, uh, whether it's their mixing engineer or just someone looking to get on a composer's team and help out? Like, how to I guess help or show that you, you want to like help serve their projects and you know make everything as smooth as possible. I mean, take as many opportunities as you can just to learn, because really. To, to get good at anything, orchestration, composing, mixing, whatever it is, you really just have to do it a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it, it helps to have some sort of compensation. And, you know, we've had a lot of debates recently in the community about whether or not you should work for free ever. And, you know, I think early on, I definitely did some projects either for free or for super cheap just because I needed the experience and it just helps build up your credits. Um, because right. that's really, I think, what most people, when they look to hire you, whether it's a director hiring a composer or a composer hiring an orchestrator or a mixer or a musician or something like that, they're going to go look at your credits. They're going to see what you've done if they don't know you already. And so to build up credits, you know, you have to have, find some way to kind of get experience and get some um, projects under your belt, I think. So, yeah, finding ways to make ends meet, but at the same time, just taking on as, as many projects as you, re, you know, realistically can. Obviously, some things you come along, it's just not worth it. It's not going to do anything for you or just not the right fit or something like that. Yeah. yeah and the credits thing is funny because I feel like I don't know, equating it to something like buying a guitar or something, like, you know, if it's a Fender guitar, you're going to spend $500. You kind of know what you're going to get. But you go to a custom guitar builder and you give them $5,000 and it takes three months longer than they told you at first <laughs> or just never done, you know, because you wanted something and they couldn't add that feature in to your guitar. It's kind of like a, I mean, with a composer, you want to pay them. And on the studio side, you want to get a great score that's, you know, done if there's orchestra that everything was recorded and sent in properly for a dub and that you know, you can't really prove that sometimes unless you've just done it before, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of the horrible paradox of trying to, to get your foot in the door. Yeah. And it's similarly with like a mixer or someone, even if they could kill on the first thing you throw at them, it's just, you, you don't have that assurance of it until you just look at their credits list and say, oh, well, this thing was, was that that I need? <laughs> yeah, totally. And then it's also these days, I think it's, you know, marketing yourself to a certain degree. I don't think you need to like spend lots of money with a huge like social media marketing campaign or something like that. But really just kind of getting your face in the industry, you know, going to events or obviously being on perspective or, you know, any other forum around that's that's uh, full of composers and other potential clients. As far as mixers, um, mm -hmm. I doubt composers really find any work on perspective because <laughs> they need directors to hire them and none <laughs> of them are on there. But um, yeah, just kind of getting your face in the industry and just meeting as many people as possible because um, that, that's where a lot of work happens for everybody, I think, is the, you know, you're at some party with another, like, friend of yours that works in the industry and you get a, you start strike up a conversation with a director or I strike up a conversation with a composer and talk about what I do or recent projects I've worked on. And then, like, oh, yeah, like, why don't we, like, give me a call and then maybe we can work together or something like that. You know, those little moments. Um, obviously, you have tons of those interactions that never go anywhere, but sometimes one of those is what sparks, you know, opens a door to a client that might be a long-term client or something like that. So just kind of getting your face out there, I think is really important. Right. Well, I mean, even going back to what you said about how you met Zach and Leo, you know, at that moment in time that they weren't going to be able to hire you for projects, but you know, I just love that you probably presented yourself in a way where you just seemed like a really chill guy. Cause I mean, the way I know you and you know, they, want to stay in touch and then when the opportunity does come up for a budget and you know the ability to up the 
game sonically and they need a mixer, they'll think of you first. Yeah, and that helps too that, you know, they saw me working with Casey, who's a very established mixer. Um, right. And I was very involved. So I, I knew how to technically get it done. Because that's the obviously a big part of being a score mixer is not only do we are we expected to make it sound good, but there's a lot of technical things we're expected to know to deliver it properly with everything in sync and at the right frame rate and sample rate and stems organized correctly. And, you know, there's that kind of whole half to my job where it's almost uh, a lot of technical custodial organizational work in a way. But it just has to be done or else things are just going to be a mess at the dub. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny that in in that regard, a lot of the job is just saving money at the or at the dub <laughs> or at the recording stage too. Yeah, yeah, I love that story from uh, I forget whose session it was, but someone told a joke on the stage, and then someone else in the room was looking at their watch and said that joke cost us two thousand dollars. <laughs> Let's get <it> going. <laughs> yeah, orchestra sessions are are not cheap, especially here or in London when you have a lot of people on the stage. It uh, that can be a lot of pressure. Because it's just, it's, uh, yeah, a lot of money going out the door every minute. Right. Uh, anyways, I'd love to keep going on. I just want to ask uh, some stuff about Tina real quick uh, before we go to the last segment uh, for the podcast. But yeah, man, it's just like, it's so great to see, um, I mean, kind of what we mentioned earlier with film and TV music, it just, it runs all over the place, genre-wise, <laughs> style-wise. So, I mean, have you worked on anything that even seemed kind of similar to Tina? And like, you talk about the challenges with the project like that um i mean the score was was nothing too out of the ordinary from danny and, and right, sonder yeah. and that's really how i got the the gig mixing the songs it, that was just literally a right place at the right time kind of thing so originally i was just going to mix the score that they did for the for the movie and i was kind of halfway through my schedule of mixing the cues um and then i think one of the producers or actually one of the directors contacted me and was like, hey, so we have these three live Tina Turner performances that are going to be in the film. And, you know, this the sound that came from the, they were all filmed on videotape, I think, like VHS tape. They're like, well, the, the stereo mix that's on those is like not not very good. So we're getting multi-track, uh, archival multi, multi-track recordings of these concerts. And they need to be mixed. And the re-recording mixer said he could probably do it, but he's not really like a music mixer guy. He doesn't mix drums, guitars, bass, all that stuff. He's really primarily a re-recording mixer. Um, and they, they didn't know where else to go. They were like, well, I mean, you're mixing the score. Do you want to mix these songs too? And I was like, hell yeah, of course, that would be amazing. Um, so I just kind of fell into it. Uh, I just happened to be the score mixer already, and they needed someone to mix some more music that just happened to be live Tina Turner. Um, yeah, so I got transfers from um, two shows, one from Barcelona in 1990, and then in the middle of the documentary, um, there's a performance of I Can't Stand the Rain from Rio in 1988. Um, so I got multi-tracks of all of those, which was really cool. Um, so, and I actually got to mix just plain old songs, like a band thing, um, live, which was really cool because I actually started out in live sound. That's kind of where I first started doing audio stuff in, in high school. I'd, you know, volunteer at festivals or like kind of, you know, just do live events, um, around Maine where I grew up and kind of the New England area. And then I, I actually toured with a band when I was in college as their engineer. So I kind of have a live sound background. Um, so that's kind gotcha. of the, a perfect combination of like my live sound roots plus film mixing and then music stuff. And, you know, it was a surround mix of all this uh, live Tina Turner stuff. So that was really fun. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like schedule wise, too, is kind of like you did score first and then the songs. So it's like a nice little separation, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> fortunately, that was I mean, that was last year. That was like j- almost a year ago, like July, August, when we were actually pr- producing the the film. Um, and my schedule wasn't super busy cause COVID kind of had slowed things down. So I was like, yeah, I got a couple extra days. 
um, to do these song mixes. Um, and for Barcelona, actually, you know, I only needed two songs. That's the beginning and the end of the documentary are from the same concert um, that I mixed. So they actually gave me, the transfer they gave me is the entire concert. So right now I'm actually working on um, doing a Dolby Atmos mix of the whole show with the hopes oh. that maybe I can get someone to do like a restoration of the video and do a Blue Air release or something like that. It probably will never go anywhere. It's mostly just me having fun. But it's kind of cool that I actually have a multi-track of the entire concert, all, you know, 15 songs or whatever that they played. Yeah. Amazing. Well, um, yeah, for the last segment of the podcast, we usually go to Tech Talk, a segment where let's stuff a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want. Fortunately, you already have a YouTube channel where you kind of do that. <laughs> so I'd love to propose uh, a segment where we list off uh, things that annoy you from composer sessions that you think could be done better and or suggestions on how composers can make their mixes better based off certain topics I'll list off if that's cool with you. Okay. Cool. So the first one I have here is uh, strings. Hmm. Strings are actually usually pretty good. I feel like string libraries have come a long way. They're usually the best sounding sample wise. Um, cool. Is it the woodwinds or the brass or something else then? Yeah. I mean, brass is pretty good too, though. It really depends. I feel like brass samples right. are really good at, they're amazing at one thing, which is if you want that huge, giant, triple forte, 12 horns, you know, Zimmer sound, they'll nail that. But sometimes samples are a little tougher to get um, subtleties with. Um, I guess I'm trying to think. There's not really anything in particular that composers do regularly that I wouldn't like about how they deliver to me other than just kind of having organized uh, separation of things. Um, this is something that I go over in my um, sort of delivery guidelines. But for orchestra, usually I don't need everything split out. It's fine if it is, but I don't need like every single like, you know, full ensemble patch that you use more just like I need at least strings long and strings short separately and then probably at least high low, if not the sections kind of spread out. Um, though usually once people read my guidelines and they're, they're pretty good at delivering that to me. Uh, I would say actually for composers, both with producing their own projects and then sending stuff to me, less is more with mixing and with processing. I've had some composers deliver me, deliver me stems where it's, you know, there's like the orchestra has tons of compression on it. I mean, I personally rarely ever use compression on orchestra unless I'm actually trying to get this like hyper-produced like short string sound. I'll maybe use a little bit of compression, but in general, um, and this also extends to mixer, bigger mixers than me that I used to assist. Like nobody really compresses orchestra. So sometimes I'll get these like hyper-compressed and you know maximized string tracks or uh, orchestra tracks with tons of EQ that just kind of sounds a little wacky and Usually, I think probably less is more. You can kind of do a little bit less with some of the demos, uh, demo mixes that uh, composers are doing. Gotcha. Well, actually, in that case, then, do you feel like composers have gotten better at mixing in the past, like, you know, or, like since you started, you know, assisting? And if that's the case, like, what do you feel like a great mixer can bring to a composer who already has, you know, pretty good sounding stuff? Um, it depends on who it is. I mean, I think there's still. Right really good composers that are kind of terrible at mixing and there's really good composers that are great at mixing. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's definitely kind of a different skill and a different knack that some people have and some people don't. Um, so I, I don't think much has changed except that everyone these days has at least a good understanding of mixing and a good understanding mm -hmm. of mixing techniques and they know what compression is, they know what EQ is, they know different reverbs, types of reverbs, things like that. Um, so it's definitely easy for me to talk about mixing with composers because they understand what I do. Um, but even, even I, I've, you know, I mean, it's true. There are some projects that I get where I listen to demo mix and I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll definitely make it better. And a lot of times 
a big part of what I'm doing too is taking their stereo mixes and and um, you know doing five one or seven one mixes uh, for right. a film dub. But um, yeah, I, I always feel like I can at least add a little polish and kind of make the score throughout an entire episode or a film a little bit more consistent. You know, composers mm-hmm. sometimes aren't the best at keeping their monitoring level consistent, so cues will kind of be all over the place volume wise. Uh, sometimes like outside of even the dynamic range that's appropriate with different music cues. Um, so that's part of my process too, is kind of evening, evening things out and kind of getting the whole score to be a little bit more consistent uh, throughout the whole project. And then just, yeah, adding that little bit of polish, you know, using some, you know, different ver- variety of reverbs on different elements. Some composers I'll notice that they just have like one medium hall. They just put everything on all the synths, all the perk, all the organs, just like sort of their rough writing verb. You know, so I'm going to use different spaces for different elements to kind of give a little more depth and dimension to their cues. Um, so, yeah, there's just, I mean, there's just further stuff that honestly, there's no point for a composer really to, unless they're really interested in it, to like get that nitty gritty about mixing things because they really are focusing on writing the music. Right. And it's funny what you were just saying that just now. I almost thought of it as kind of similar to like what a mastering engineer does on, a, on an album. It's like you're just given that level of consistency to every track. So it's not like, yeah, all of a sudden, like something is way louder on one cue and then the next cue, it's you can't hear the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, really, uh, in the end, I'm, I feel like I'm always trying to bring, and this is something I'm, I'm stealing this from Alan Myerson. Like, I feel like a good scoring mixer is kind of bringing the cue the last like 10%. Like, it's a very important 10%, and it's the final sort of cherry on top. But it's, you know, obviously composers have worked very hard with the directors or producers on their projects to make sure that the um, the music is serving the picture correctly and is doing something that um, is suitable to the story. So I do have to pay a lot of attention um, to the ref mix and making sure that um, the spirit of the ref, as it were, is still there, that the general balance of, you know, like if the composer had a lot of prelay elements like guitars and synths and things of like that in the forefront and the orchestra is more of a sweetener, I can't reverse that. I can't give them a mix and the orchestra is super loud and all that stuff is lost because that's not what the cue was. But um, still, yeah, just adding that extra refinement without totally reworking the sound of the score. I still want to um, sort of honor the vibe that they, they wrote for the film. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because there is a... I can't remember what movie it was, but there was some P- cue where there was a banjo that I thought was really cool. I could tell it was live, and I think the orchestra might have been programmed, but the banjo was just the center of everything, and it was just so loud in comparison to the orchestra. And I was thinking, this is kind of funny, you know? It's like, wouldn't be the case in the real world. But I guess with mixing, it, it, it doesn't... I mean, yes, I guess with a lead vocalist and a a drummer, the drums are generally going to be louder in real life anyways. It's always a funny kind of thing. Yeah, I don't find many film scores really take a truly classical approach anymore where <laughs> um, where the score is really intended and orchestrated um, and written to be functional as a you know full orchestra playing in a room. Obviously, there's still some traditional um, writing that happens like that, but it's, it's definitely much more of a production-heavy world now um, where, we're, yeah, we're doing things, playing with balances that are technically unnatural but that's just sort of the sound that we've created in the industry yeah well cool uh i mean you kill it here with the the last segment do you want to tell uh, our <laughs> listeners about any uh, projects you have coming up uh well i mean it's more more of the same cobra kai season four is coming up for me soon ozark season four starts soon though i don't think that comes out for a while um there's no official release date yet for either of those that, that i know of um Danny and Sonder have a bunch of projects that I'm kind of just starting out on uh, a lot of documentaries and, you know, series and things like that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything, 
I think most of, you know, I had a, a number of projects that I did like a couple years ago that were supposed to release last spring and then finally then got pushed away later. Like Promising Young Women, I did over two years ago, but that didn't come out until this, this past Christmas. And I think most of those have, uh, have finally released. So, um, yeah, it's mostly just kind of now new work is finally starting to come in and there'll be newer stuff that I can talk about more later in the year or next year. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it was such a pleasure having you on the show, Phil. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. Matthew Wong.